In reference to creating safety in our schools, I'm going to talk about the safety kit model because this is a model that actually is research-based, that is that is implementable in all schools. And, and this model is really proven to create a, a safer environment within schools. So when we bring our program into schools, we, we start first with school administration. And we actually provide a very comprehensive workshop for school administrators, really focusing on what we call the foundation of safety within the school. Abusers groom children meaning they, they start preparing them, so to speak, um, to, to, God forbid, become victims. But they also decide which children are safe that they feel they can get away with, with abusing. And in that, in that case, even a little bit of information, if the children exhibit some signs that someone's coming too close to them, it's just a quick look. That first, the abuser says, oh, this, this kid was spoken to. Children need to walk into our building and feel safe. And in order to do that, there are some policies in place that any school can put in place where you start the conversation before they even walk in the door, literally. So on a staff level, every single staff member is fingerprinted. I can't believe this is not mandated, but I heard in some states it's not. Before you walk in the door, you have a contract with us that involves you getting fingerprinted as well as how we deal with this type of issue and policy. I think that, I guess, one of the nice things about working in a camp or in any organization is that there is a team. And I, I think each of us knowing our role within the organization and who we report to, and that we're not doing it alone, that you know, you're, you're gonna consult with somebody else, that there's somebody else who's gonna understand the discomfort in making the report, that there's somebody else who's gonna understand the necessity in making the report. I believe we're making a really big dent in this issue. And we're really, as a community, making a difference. And I think the reason is because we're talking about it, is because we're doing things just like we're doing together tonight, is that we are creating a culture and a community that recognizes that we have to communicate about these things. And the only way to do that is to increase awareness that these issues can occur and do occur and how we look out for them and how we communicate about that. Dr. Berger mentioned it, you know, it's not a, it's not a simple process, um, but it's, a, uh, it's an important process. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that has to get done and people have to learn how to be comfortable doing it and guided through, guided through it properly uh, to, make, to make that happen. Um, so just want to acknowledge that piece. In terms of change and, you know, the constant evolving and, and, and you know, more standards and being sharper and more thoughtful and more holistic. And when I came in, NCSY did not have a, uh, or any part of the OU did not have, let's say a social media, right? Um, boundary guidelines, because there was no such thing as social media. It, it was, it wasn't there. And, you know, uh, we had to develop those policies and then we had to roll them out. And uh, definitely not simple to do. Welcome back to the Jews Next Door podcast, where each month we explore a different topic of our parenting hierarchy with the goal of raising the next generation of passionate committed Jews. I'm your host, Rabbi Ir Manchel, and this month we took a break from this parenting hierarchy to really do four episodes on this topic of child safety in honor of Child Safety Month. And the first three episodes we spoke about, you know, the parent-child relationship and the healthy home. And the third episode we spoke about the role-playing 
you know, the types of the conversations that we should have with our children. And in this episode, it's going to be a little bit different where we're going to be focusing on the ways that organizations in the Orthodox community, both, you know, camps, schools, and organizations have done work in this area of child safety and have shown real improvement. Well, I'll be having a guest host, Rabbi Moshe Hauer, who is the executive vice president of the OU, who is going to lead this roundtable conversation in, in two different segments, with the first one focusing on schools and the second one focusing on organizations. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. My name is Moshe Hauer, Rabbi Moshe Hauer. I have the privilege to serve as the executive vice president of the Orthodox Union, the OU. This month, November 2023, uh, through and in partnership with our Gen Olive program, uh, we have dedicated the month in participation with a national program called Child Protection and Safety Month uh, to the subject of child safety. Child safety is a subject which in our community has, thank God, received significant attention over the past years. Uh, the first three episodes, which were done by Jen Olive, aimed at parents, parental education, to understand the issue, to, to be well-educated as to how to interact with one's own children around this issue. Uh, this, this episode, we are presenting as uh, a discussion of institutional safety, of schools and other institutions within our community, creating the safe environments for our children to be able to ensure that our children remain safe. And if heaven forbid, there's any kind of an infraction on, on child safety, that we deal with it, that we deal with it well. Uh, it's an area which throughout the, the world has had significant progress uh, since a time not long ago, time that many of us can remember within our own professional lives, we were, so to speak, in the dark ages, you know, completely unfamiliar and unequipped to understand the risks and to, and to respond to them. And uh, over time, thank God, we've come to understand them a lot better, to respond to them better, and even more important, to prevent them significantly by creating safe environments in schools and other Jewish institutions. Uh, change is a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. But, you know, sometimes when you have a chance to see how change has occurred over time, it's incredibly inspiring and incredibly rewarding. And uh, it's beautiful to see how far the community, the Jewish community specifically, and its organizations has, has, has come over the past uh, couple of decades in this area. There is, always, there is always room for improvement and enhancement. And I, I think we see constant effort to make things better and safer and stronger. And uh, our, our goal, our goal in this episode is to be together with professionals in the field who can present stellar examples, beautiful examples of, of how to create institutional safety. And in this, first, uh, in this first part of the discussion, I have the privilege to be joined by uh, Mrs. Debbie Fox, who is the founder and director of Magheni Ladim Safety Kid a program which is a pioneering program in bringing, uh, bringing safety to schools within the Jewish community, within the Orthodox Jewish community specifically. And I, I uh, can never uh, speak about uh, Debbie without noting she has been a personal mentor to me for, I think, close to 30 years. 
uh, in uh, in addressing these issues and uh, her her counsel and her wisdom and her experience have served me and many 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 people uh, very very well many communities extremely well and we're we're grateful for her being here Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz Rabbi Yanki Horowitz uh, is uh, is also a, both a very dear friend and a and a very treasured mentor an example of someone who has is besides being a mechanech an educator par excellence the founding dean of Yeshiva Darchi Noam in Mansi and uh, and uh, a a a strong child safety advocate and someone who has guided and inspired so many of the critical movements of of social challenge in the Orthodox community over the past decades. And uh, he's here tonight to speak from all those perspectives, and especially as a as a, an implementer par excellence of school safety in in the school that he founded and led for so many years. And finally, Mrs. Ahuva Heyman, who's the school director of Benos Yisrael in Baltimore, another example of outstanding, outstanding leadership in implementing uh, the, the creation of a safe environment in 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 a school. In a, in, a, in a beautiful, beautiful school, a school that I know from up close, from uh, from uh, just a, a seven-minute walk from my house in Baltimore, and um, and, a, and a wonderful school. And we're here to to have this discussion, to see how it's done, to see how it's done, to see so that all of us, members of the community, to see what schools are doing to create safe environments and to create and to really to show an example for those in the field to see how accessible it is to create truly, truly safe environment to the extent that we have the ability to do so. So I would like to begin by, by, uh, by turning to, to Debbie and asking, asking you, Debbie, you're a pioneer in the field. You have guided schools in the multi-track, multidisciplinary paths which are needed in order to be able to create safe environments on all fronts. And if you could speak a little bit about your experience, about what it looks like what school safety and the implementation of school safety uh, looks like. Thank you, Rabbi Howard. Always an honor to to work with you um, and to work with the OU and to be on this team. Uh, it's really an honor. Um, so in reference to uh, creating safety in our schools, I'm going to talk about the safety kit model because this is a model that actually is research-based, that is that is implementable in all schools. And, and this model is really proven to create a, a safer environment within schools. So when we bring our program into schools, we, we start first with school administration. And we actually provide a very comprehensive workshop for school administrators, really focusing on what we call the foundation of safety within the school really looking at safe hiring practices, at them setting up professional boundaries for their staff, staff members, uh, looking at safe environmental issues within their schools, where are areas that really need to be supervised, the concept of having uh, glass on each door so that people can see in, all of those factors, abuse-related uh, policies, all of those factors that create a foundation for safety within the school. And so we start with administration. Our next step is that we go to staff. And we go to staff, we focus with staff on 
what's the staff role in keeping children safe? And we look at their professional boundaries. How can they make sure that whatever role I'm playing is within my professional boundary as a teacher um, or whatever your staff role is? Uh, And then we look at how can staff know what the signs and symptoms of abuse are? Because the bottom line is, if staff can pick them up, what's going on with the kids on a day-to-day, if staff can pick that up, they can help prevent problems before they hit red flags, when they're pink flags. They see the kids more hours a day than anybody else in the child's life. So if we give them those tools, then they then can really be the eyes and the ears of of social workers. They can determine when something's happening with children and get those children help at, at the earliest phase. We teach them all kinds of skills, how to handle a disclosure, um, how to know what are the characteristics that they might look for in a predator. What can a teacher know that can empower a teacher to help our kids? Um, and then can last- I, can, I, can, I interrupt you for, can I interrupt you for a second, Debbie? Because I think that's a very important transit, uh, uh, distinction that came out uh, in, in this, which is that, that you know, part of creating a safe school is that the school shouldn't be the source of the problem. And part of creating what you're talking about is that the school is part of the solution for problems which occur outside. You know, many times when we think about these problems, we think about high, you know, stories which make headlines, which sometimes actually grew out of institutions. But the vast majority, I believe the data is that the vast majority take, take place uh, in homes and, 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 and uh, places outside of these. But the school is really at the forefront of being able to do early identification and intervention. So it's not just the school as not being the cause of the problem, but it's also the school as being the source of the solution. That's part of what you're educating. Yeah, 68 to 70 percent of abuse occurs in the home. And so we want to make sure that children in school are safe. And by teaching, by teaching everybody what the standards are, by teaching a staff together, and by also letting teachers know that our job is to create a school that's not safe for for predators. And the more we all know what our standards are, all of us, the whole staff, the more we all know, then if something that happens that goes against those, those guidelines we've set up, It's our responsibility to say something to an administrator or supervisor because that's what creates safety for all of us. So we want that safety in school, but we also feel like Rabbi Howard, you just mentioned, is that we need those educators who see the kids more hours a day than anyone else to take a role in picking up issues that are happening outside of school and to know what to do with them, to know who to go to to know how to get the right help. There's a lot of focus on how do the teachers get that right help. And then we go to the parents. And our parent workshops are very focused on prevention. What do parent, What are the conversations that parents need to have with their children to focus on prevention? It's only after we've gone to administrators and staff and parents that we create a shield for children. Then we go in and teach children what they need. But the adults are responsible and we have to create a safe world. And I I just want to throw in one statistic that to me is very meaningful, 
which is almost anybody you go to, any workshop you go to will say that the statistics are one in four girls and one in seven boys have been molested before the age of 18. But I want to say that David Finkelhorst, Dr. David Finkelhorst, who is a top statistician uh, today, his he says that it has changed to one in 10. Now, one in 10 is not a great statistic, but it's a dramatic improvement over one in four and one in seven. And his comment is that there is a lot more awareness today. And the awareness that equates to prevention is when you have administration, staff, and parents educated before children. And so for every school to look at that model, however they look at it, I think that really focuses on creating a safe school for our children and for our staff. Okay. Remarkable and comprehensive. Um, uh, very comprehensive. Rabbi Horowitz, uh, speak about, about it from your perspective as a, as a school leader. Um, how, how does, how does it feel to implement, how does it work to implement this? How tedious is it? How liberating is it to be able to have the, you know, the clarity of guidance, you know, around it? Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. That was really excellent. And, and her program is fantastic. Um, and it's just the way she described to have each of those pieces, because like, as Debbie said, we know some, a great percentage comes from the house. So we need people outside the house telling the children, you know, so that, that's, that's really a wonderful approach. Um, I, I would just like to speak to, to two components um, in addition to what, what Debbie's saying. Is one is a, a concept called institutional grooming. And it would encourage parents to have a quick look at it. Um, the, the theory is that, that um, abusers groom children, meaning they, they start preparing them, so to speak, um, to, to, God forbid, become victims, but they also decide which children are safe that they feel they can get away with, with abusing. And in that, in that case, even a little bit of information, if the children exhibit some signs that someone's coming too close to them, it's just a quick look. That first, the abuser says, oh, this, this kid was spoken to. I give an example. If you invited someone to your, to your Shabbat table, or you went out to a restaurant together with your whole family. How old would a child have to be to know that someone's violating norms of regular eating rules of, of how we eat? If someone took a piece of chicken with their hands, how old would your children have to be to see that, observe it, start to giggle or, or look back a bit? Because the norm is that we, we, we don't eat with their hands. So when somebody does invade, if the children are accustomed to having personal space, if someone invades that space, that's not what they're used to. So they just, that, that quick look, they're so attuned to it. Uh, you may want to read an article called, um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a fantastic piece on the Penn State scandal called In Plain View. I really encourage you to have a look at it. He explains grooming in a very user-friendly way. So abusers, groom institutions. They want to see which, which institutions are safe for them to, God forbid, set up shop. Therefore, in addition to what, to what Debbie's saying, that, that, that's step number one. The next step is talk about it. Send a memo to, to, to the community saying we're, we're doing a safe, a safe, put a sign up on the, bill, on the bulletin board with child safety rules. 
Um, do that in your shul, in your synagogue. So you get messaging out to parents in, in just that you got game. And, and sometimes that can be enough to deter an abuser to, to go elsewhere. It's just enough. Can I ask you? Please. Can I ask you, when, when you introduced it to your yeshiva, mm-hmm. when you introduced safety education to your yeshiva, I don't know if when you started it was already in place. I think it may have been, it may have, when you introduced it to a group of educators right. who had functioned previously without it, how, 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 how did it go down? So, you know, it, it, initially, the very first time you do it, there's going to be a little bit of resistance. So people will, will look around and, you know, start asking questions. I, I, the first time I um, had that reaction was Torah Masora back in 2003. Torah Masora, which is a network of, of, of day schools all across uh, North America, they published an addendum to a contract that at the time very very few schools were using. And I I called a staff meeting and told the staff that we're going to in next year, I'm going to be attaching it to the back of the contract. And the fellows went out and they started asking their colleagues, and none of the other schools were using it at the time. And they got like a little bit offended. And like Rabbi Horowitz and I I said, if you want to Make sure, in other words, that, that the contract, det- that, that addendum detailed what's appropriate behavior um, in, in terms of interaction with the children, in terms of the types of things you, you talk to kids about. Um, and so I told them, I said, if you want to be sure that you're on the safe side and that nobody could ever make an accusation against you, just follow those, that page, those two pages. It just tells you exactly what you should and shouldn't do when we have problems. And this is what I told them. We have problems when it's not clear. And people, especially today, that look in those 20 years since then, as you mentioned, as Debbie mentioned, I, I didn't hear that statistic, the 10%. That's really what I'm, I'm saying. Temp, uh, you know, I'm not saying that's good, one in 10, but it's much better. It, it shows that education works. Um, so that, that, that concept of, of, Getting it out there as an institution of making a statement that, that we're doing that. Another example I gave, I sent an email to my list uh, uh, and posted on social media for a few years um, before some Torah that, that I'm encouraging shuls to have somebody go around and lock up all the uh, unused space where an abuser could, God forbid, harm a child. Lock up the boiler room, close the empty classrooms, but make an announcement also. Get up and make an announcement. Have the president make an announcement. We closed off. The, you may notice that these spaces are open. We closed them because Simchas Torah is a less structured time, and we want the children to, we want to make sure that our children are safe. And we ask every adult to please keep an eye open. And if there's, you know, it, it's a terrible thing to say, but if you have X number of people in a room, there's going to be people that have a propensity to abusing. They hear this loud and clear. And, and that's what the, the, this concept of an institution being forward about not only doing what Debbie's describing, but talking about it and making it part of the culture of the school, um, it reinforces what you do and, and um, it helps message the abusers with exactly what we want to tell them. So the answer to you, a long, a long answer to a short question, Rabbi Howard, 
it was at the beginning, back then, certainly, it was a little bit, you know, delicate. But I explained to them that it's for their safety. It's for not only the safety of the children, it's for your safety. Because when there's ambiguity about simple questions, should, 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 you know, should a teacher take a child home from, you know, from if the child misses the bus? Simple, simple questions that were different 10 and 20 years ago. So it's the, be- the more uh, precise we are, the more we talk about these things, the more we hash through them and develop policies, the, the, the safer our schools are and the less confusion there is around uh, um, situations like this. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. Uh, Mrs. Heyman, uh, parents, students, bringing them in. So, you know, it's one thing professionals, uh, you know, creating the, the administrative norms, the, the staff norms, right. uh, educating a whole community of parents and of students on such a delicate subject. Ha- ha- tell us a little bit about how, how it works. And how okay, it works. so it's, in my opinion, it's very easy if you do it from the beginning and you're not scared to take the leadership from the people who know better from you, than you, from the Debbie Foxes and the Rabbi Horowitz. Dr. Pelkowitz, um, we established a school, Mrs. Itzkowitz started the school 24 years ago based on safety and trust. Children need to walk into our building and feel safe. And in order to do that, there are some policies in place that any school can put in place where you start the conversation before they even walk in the door, literally. So on a staff level, every single staff member is fingerprinted. I can't believe this is not mandated, but I heard in some states it's not. Before you walk in the door, you have a contract with us that involves you getting fingerprinted, as well as how we deal with this type of issue and policy. Once you walk in the door, we want every child to feel safe. So we do a few things that I'm telling you, any school can do, and it's not even expensive. It just changes the culture of walking in the door. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Number one, we don't allow children to come into school and be in an unmonitored location. That's even with every door with a glass window and every locked place, heavily locked. We lock places with key cards. So if there is a boiler room and we don't want anyone in there, nobody can get in there. Not enough to just have a lock that was put in 80 years ago. So when the children walk into school, the preschool children gather in a central location and they are welcomed by a preschool teacher. Then they are walked to the next preschool teacher and they are escorted basically to their classroom at the time that school is supposed to begin. The elementary girls, they go into a large lunchroom. They line up with their teachers. There's no opportunity. We're not giving girls an opportunity to be alone in a space that could prove to be a a not safe space. Our teachers are hired knowing that they're going to be at recess and they're going to be at lunch. I don't know about boys' schools. I'm a girls' school person, but where do you think the most drama happens in girls' schools? It's always at recess and lunch. And the more supervision there is, not on top of you, not letting you move. Supervision means there's a safe adult, a good Debbie Fox term. There's a safe adult, a safe person around for a child to go to. Can I interrupt you? Of course. I just want to note for those who are listening to this and think that this sounds like West Point, uh, that Benosiusville of Baltimore is like the warmest, coziest school that anyone could imagine. So what's being described is very thoughtful and very deliberate and very careful, but it is not cold and regimented at all. People call it camp. 
I was just no, I was just saying, if if I may interrupt Rabbi Hauer and 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 Ahuva, um, when you have rules like this, the children get more comfortable because they know that if Debbie's program is implemented, that means that everybody around this is something that we're talking about, and I know that that you know uh, the Maganyel Adim representative or whomever it was that spoke to us told us about our that. We have a right to our personal space, and this, so that it brings comfort. It, uh, of course, it's done in a way that's 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 kid friendly, but I, I propose that it makes kids more comfortable knowing. I, that I absolutely they're... agree. It's an intentional culture, right. and that culture starts from the top, and it works its way down. It makes staff members comfortable. It makes students comfortable. Another example I can give is that in our preschool, elementary, and middle school bathrooms, the main door is not allowed to be closed and locked. Obviously, in an individual stall, everyone has privacy, but a bathroom area that normally is behind closed doors, we want our girls to know that they don't need to be worried. Um, we're not even talking about the most egregious offenses. We're talking about anything that makes a child feel unsafe, which we know occurs nowadays. We have a no bullying policy. We just can't allow girls to come to school and not feel safe. In addition, we are all mandated reporters. And we need to take that role seriously. So if a child feels comfortable, and another way we make them feel comfortable is we have social workers starting in preschool. And you learn from when you're young that speaking to an adult is safe. And speaking to an adult who's there to keep you safe is a very, very, very beneficial thing. So we have a postcard system where any young child can leave a postcard by the social worker's mailbox literal mailbox, and they'll be called out to discuss whatever is bothering them. So one of the big jokes that we have in our school is that kids make meetings to speak to the principal, and they also cancel them when they work the things out. You know, they don't need the meeting anymore. We're giving them the power to know that we want them to be safe, but we're also giving them the tools to know that they can also work things out on their own. So obviously, as the girls get older, it gets more complicated, you know, and we need to think about where they are in each stage. But we have no problem letting the child know there's an adult here to keep you safe. The adults know they're here to keep you safe. We have rules. It's a girls' school, so I'll tell you we have rules up until what age a teacher can touch a child's hair. I know that sounds maybe strange for the boys' school, but little girls like when you braid their hair and you brush their hair. And in a very young age, like three or four-year-old, that would be okay. As you get older, we don't allow that. We don't allow children sitting on laps after a certain age. None of this is to make us this cold, like Rabbi Howard said. It's to make us a warm, safe, loving place where children can come. And if, chas v'shalom, there is something they need to share, they're most likely to share it with somebody they're going to trust. And that trust gets built by coming to a school where they know they're that important and that we believe them. Wonderful. Um, uh, Debbie. So what what is what does it involve to bring a school up to speed? Uh, you, you spoke about all these four things. So making sure there are glass in the windows happens once, presumably until the until the school expands or grows or or, or changes. Uh, teachers, like how how frequent, how often, how how much of an investment of time and energy is there in the in the administration of a school in order to make sure that everybody's up to snuff that uh, that all the four pieces that you described are uh, are in place. I think that's an important question, but I feel like what 
both Ahuva and Rabbi Horowitz said really are the answers, which is it's not about the time, it's about the dedication. It's about really setting the the forum and the format within your school that everything falls into place. So like for instance, in reference to what Ahuva says, one of the things that we suggest is when you interview a teacher, just interview them. You're not hiring them. Just interview them, show them your conduct policy and let them know this is part of our hiring process and pay attention to their response. One thing I'm going to tell you is most predators don't want to get caught. If in your interview process, you're showing them a policy that clearly is letting them know this is not a safe place for a predator, uh, the high likelihood is they're not going to pursue your school. And that's exactly what you want, right? But if you're setting up supervision, you're setting up the, the forum and the format the the institution so that you are following guidelines together and and it all works together so if if we talk to the administrators let's say about professional boundaries then i want to go to rabbi horowitz's point he's talking about how do we prevent grooming in schools right so then we have to talk with staff members about what is grooming and what are the guidelines for staff like, how do you handle individual interactions? When are there questions about boundary violations? What would you do if you didn't know? Should I be, Rabbi Horace brought up the example of, should I be taking that child home who missed the boat, missed the bus, and it's snowing outside, and he's freezing, and he's standing out there alone? Do I just put him in my car when we're not supposed to, or what should I do? Right. Whatever that is, what we teach them is if you're concerned about could this be a boundary violation, what do you do? Right. So that you have a forum and a format for figuring out how do I deal with the potential boundary violation? How do I how do I take we want them and we're we're clear that within our world. Having a warm relationship with students is important. We never want to take that away. And, and we're hearing that from Uva within her school as well. I experienced it in her school. But we want there to be warm relationships. But part of what we stress is warm relationships need to be equal. Everybody has to have access to warm relationships, not just one child or two children. Um, and prizes have to be equal access so that we're not developing a relationship with only one child or only two children, but that whatever we do, we're not promoting grooming environments. Um, and so we, it, it's about really that which we're looking at that foundation with, with administration has to actually be actualized within the staff. We have to train them in that way as well. And I think that what Ahuva described is uh, is a perfect system, which is we all work together. And when parents know as well, and when we train parents that if you have a concern, communicate, talk with us, let us know what you're concerned about. Some of that can be easily handled. Some of that may be more complicated. 
but it creates safety for everybody, most importantly, the students. And I just want to say, Rabbi Hauer, in this day and age, I, I often say to staff members that when I was a kid, and my father was the principal of my school, but you, a child would never go home and tell a parent you got in trouble in school, because if you did, you got in trouble again. There was never a hashash that the teacher was wrong, never. And when I say to teachers today is, how many of you believe it's that way today? That there's no hashash that teachers are wrong. Nobody will raise their hand. They feel very often like the immediate assumption is it was the teacher's fault. May have been the child's action, but somehow or another, it's the teacher's fault. So really keeping to these guidelines makes teachers safer too. So it's really helping to make the teachers safer as well as the students. And the institutions, the institutions liability. Rabbi Horowitz, could you could you speak? Did you yeah, want to say I, I something? I want to specific? drill down for a moment, if I may, on on Ahuva's beautiful presentation, rules, and explanation of them, and and take the thing what you said about the hair, right? That that at a certain age, you know, it's appropriate and 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 um, uh, proper to to fix a child's hair, or or, but after a certain age, it's not. It's very very important point there because school could disagree about what age that is. This isn't cast in stone. So one school might say after third grade, one school might say after sixth grade. And and they're both okay when the schools communicate the policy to everyone, that all the staff knows, the administration knows, and the parents and the kids, everybody knows that there is a policy. So one policy doesn't fit all. I was actually retained by a number of schools Rabbi Howard, you asked how schools take it. I was retained to sell it to the um, to the staff of the school, particularly the Judaic study staff. And and the research shows that if if a school prints up a policy and says, "Okay, here's the policy, everybody," the research shows it's far less likely to be followed than if they get input from the teachers. And a teacher should be able to say, "Well, fifth grader, I can't touch it here." That that's fine. You hash it out among yourselves. Come up with a policy, and all schools won't have the exact same policy. Um, but as long as it's communicated precisely, some schools might say somebody should never take a child home in the car. Some will say, well, if it's daylight hours and you call the parent first and it's a 10 minute drive, then you could do it. So each school could have, and they should have different policies. There isn't one person that has, you know, the, the, control over this or or decides what to do. It's it's an organic process. The head of the school leads that process along with the professional. Um, I worked with Dr. Shira Berkowitz, who's really excellent. And and the consensus, putting it in writing, getting it out to everyone. Then everybody knows, everybody's comfortable doing what they're doing. You can express affection to your children a certain way. I know some summer camps say you can touch on the shoulder, on the arm, but not on the shoulder, whatever. They have rules of how, how to do it. Once the people know it, everybody's okay. They don't have to look over the shoulders and, and, and they can express affection and support for kids in a way that's within those guidelines. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Mrs. Heyman, could you speak a little bit about that second role of the school of the of noticing, of being being aware of what's going on with the kids and uh, and being able to flag yeah, a situation. 100%. So we're very lucky the way the school is structured. 
Um, it was started by Mrs. Itzkowitz. She's still there. She's the one who insisted on social workers from the beginning. But every part of the school has a mini school. So there's a preschool, elementary, middle school, and high school. And in each division, there are three main goals. There's the educational, there's the emotional, and then there's the social. And we all work together to help with that. In order to do that, there's the educators, there's the special educators, and then there's the guidance counselors. So we meet often to discuss all the children of the school, and we listen to each other. When Debbie said there are pink flags, a lot of times if you recognize pink flags, you never get to the red flags. Even if people are upset or people think you overreact or people think, why are you making a big deal? We have trained ourselves to be very, very aware. A kid who's always happy and suddenly won't eat her lunch. A kid who used to be the life of the playground and is standing on the side. What's going on here? And if you have that relationship with the parents where they're going to expect that you're going to call and reach out, sometimes you find out it's something minor, but sometimes it's something major. And for whatever reason, the parents didn't communicate. You know, and sometimes we hear and we're like, of course that child is bitzar. Now we need a plan to how we're going to help them. It doesn't mean that the worst thing happened to them, but life happened. And nowadays, you know, I, I, I was joking last week when I said our children are being raised in a society where they have exposure to everything that none of us had exposure to until we got married. In my life, nobody said the word divorce. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest. Nobody was sick. Not everything was in our face 24-7. Our children, not only did they live through COVID, but now they're living through a war and the pressure that is placed on them. And say to Hillam now, because if you break the chain, somebody might die. This world has trained our children that they're also responsible for the world. So sometimes you could see a kid who's really struggling and they need a voice. They need someone to take them aside and say, what's going on? What are you worried about? And that's going to create this culture where kids will share. And then, Halila, when it's a red flag and they need to share to save their lives, they're going to feel comfortable doing it. And we have gone so far as to create lunch groups based around one child's need. We're going to put seven kids together with an experienced social worker so that child can end up having a voice. Because a lot of times a child doesn't want to be alone in a social situation where they feel uncomfortable. So we'll talk about what does a healthy friendship look like in a group of seven? What does personal space look like in a group of seven? And we do that all the way up. And our hope is that if a child is faced with something that is serious, they're going to reach out to someone. And if they don't reach out to someone, at least they'll give us those, you know, I call it silent screaming. You know, they're, they're kids that are screaming for help and they're waiting for the adult. They're waiting for the adult in their life to step in and notice. And we should never need all these tools. We should never need the the video that's on 24-7 in the high school principal's office because that's a man. No, no sound, 24-7. And everybody should know that that video is sitting right there. Why? Because everybody should always feel safe walking into a school whose job it is to take care of children. And I, when I said before, I don't think it's so hard. I'm not minimizing it. I don't think anything we're doing is so incredible, rocket science difficult. I think it's the basics of taking care of Hashem's children. Keep them safe, trust them, and let them know that no matter what comes up, you are there for them. It's very, it's very impactful to hear you describe uh, school safety done right. It really is very, very impactful. 
and I thank you for that. I'm gonna I'm gonna retrace my steps and just ask Rabbi Horowitz for 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 a moment. Um, amongst many other things that you have done, you have created a child safety book. So I, I think we could say you know how to speak to children about this issue. Um, it's I, I don't know how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies have, are out there at this point in time, uh, but. I, it, we, we, we've spoke, I think other elements of this podcast have spoken about parents communicating with their children, just a, a little bit about the school communicating with the children about such delicate, about such delicate topics and how we, how we actually that. designed the book that Dr. David Kalkowitz and, and, and Dr. Bazin Tversky reviewed every image and every word and the nuances were so important because we didn't want to do anything that was frightening. If you look, it's called Let's Stay Safe, where, where there's a Yiddish version and two Hebrew versions. Um, thank God we're in 140,000 homes already. And um, if I may, we're doing, um, during this month, we're doing actually a program. We're offering um, $5 a book in continental U.S. with free shipping. And it's 10 shekel a book in, in, for the Hebrew books. Please take advantage of we're subsidizing it. I'm glad to raise more money to subsidize more copies. Um, we really want to get a book in every home. Um, and But the book is designed, uh, uh, we, we didn't start right. We want to make parents comfortable. So we started the book. I'm just using this book as a, as a template for, you know, model for a case study. So we started by crossing the street safe and putting on helmets. And then we went to stranger danger. And then there's six pages in the middle that actually talk uh, about the, the real issues. Uh, and even then, there's, not, there's no frightening images. And the research shows that when, when parents frighten children, when we talk to them, you, know, you want to get their attention, but if you scare them, they, they don't recall what you said. You can look up Maslow's hierarchy of needs for an explanation of why that's so or other issues like that. But it, it's supposed to be, first of all, that book or any, any talk we do with the kids, it's the beginning of a conversation. We're letting them know that it's okay to talk about this. And uh, Dr. Pelkowitz told us at the time that when parents speak to kids, it should be like a concern level two, three out of 10, 10 being the most uh, most uh, scared, in other words, uh, frightening. That enough to know that it's important, but not not to freeze them and to, to get them you know, intimidated. So it's, it's about a conversation. It's a, it's a relationship of trust. Think of what Ahuva said while you were talking, Ahuva. I was thinking, about that, everything you were saying in relation to to a home, and what Debbie was speaking, you know about 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 the administration, the other people getting it. Couples should have discussions with each other. Um, you know, even if people, even if couples divorced, to have discussions with each other about here's how we're going to introduce these things to our kids, and and when the ki- when are the kids hitting puberty? When do we want to have this conversation with the children? That this should be something that's based on research, and and you know, I always think about tell me anything. You know, that's the slogan. You know, tell me anything. Disclosing that someone's encroaching on someone's space, or God forbid, worse, or grooming activities, or, or God forbid, worse than that, is such an uncomfortable conversation for children to have. So we want to tell them again and again that it's okay to talk to us about anything. And, you know, that'll serve you well in, in raising your children all together, especially because of technology. They have so much access to everything. You, you'll never know what's going really going on 
if if they're not comfortable talking to you. So I think that's that's overall about Howard. That's how I would I would describe it as as a process. The, the, the education we give them is the beginning of that process. And I think when God forbid there's a situation um, that that the kids are talking about someone, you know, that there was an abuser, God forbid, or something. When it's out there, that's the time to talk to kids about it. Okay, so that's very helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the last question, Debbie. Sort of like just circle back to what this has all been about, and it's been very very helpful. Like trying to to show a picture of what this comprehensive education looks like, how creating the safe school environment looks, the you know the various components, and like really great examples of seeing it implemented perfectly and uh, and uh, or you know beautifully to 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 create that safety. But from your perspective, as someone who's involved in a very formal national effort that helps bring these programs to schools. So you've seen it, seen it in, in a wide range of schools in the Jewish community, successes, I assume, sometimes less than successful. How do you see where we've gone in, 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 uh, over the past decades and where we still need to go? That's a good question. I want to say that in general, in a general sense, I am really inspired. I feel that we go around the country uh, and go from school to school and schools and communities. We often are brought in by entire community and we train all the schools in the community at a time. And they are they want this information and they may not yet be at the level that Ahuva is describing from Benos Yisrael, but they're all starting somewhere. And it's really inspiring to see that in each community, uh, they want the education. They want to learn how to prevent. They want to learn um, how to keep kids safe. I, I really do believe that in general, we have come to uh, the point where as communities, we want more and more information. I can tell you that our our program within the Hasidic community is um, is really bursting at the seams. They really have many schools uh, that that they're in, many yeshivas, many chadarim, um, and they're expanding to others. Uh, the entire program is in Yiddish and is very very um, culturally tailored, but extremely accurate for the Yiddish speaking community. Uh, if you go to Mexico City, we have the entire program in Spanish. They do 5,000 kids a year, every single school in Mexico City. Uh, Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh, Monday night, I was in, um, in Detroit, Michigan. There were um, 500 teachers there. So what I'm saying is I'm, I'm proud of our world. I really am. And I think that schools are, are, are asking me, even begging me, give us, give us better policies for our schools and train us on that. And I am working on developing that. But what I'm saying is I'm finding schools want to know more and, and are motivated. Now I'm not going to say that things never happen that, uh, schools don't know how to deal with. 
or that are really, there are really political issues there that are not complicated. But I am going to say one thing. I have found that in this model that we're discussing, where we educate parents, we educate staff, and we educate administrators, that smaller issues are coming to the surface so much quicker and bigger issues are prevented. In terms of, let's say, grooming, when we teach parents about grooming, what should you be worried about? I tell parents, I'm going to teach you the stages of grooming. But what I want you to know most is, what's the gut feeling that you get when I'm, when I'm going through this with you? Because that gut feeling is going to tell you when your kid is groomed. You got to pay attention to that. What doesn't feel right? What's breaking these boundaries? But then when they pick that up, they'll go to administrators and administrators are taking it seriously. And so I think that this communication and this awareness within communities, I, I really believe it's making a difference. We've got a ways to go, but I think we're well on, on the road. Perhaps the most important thing that I could say is that having the structure in place um, is the number one most important thing when you run into a crisis. So Benos Yisrael did experience a crisis. The details are not important, but what is important is that because we had a structure, because we had a policy, because we had the contacts, the Debbie Foxes, the Dr. Pelkowitzes, the, the Dr. Foxes, the people that we could reach out to, to help guide us, to help guide our students, to help guide our parents, we were able to emerge. I mean, Khalila, if we wouldn't have had policies in place, including tech policies, our school could have been shut down for many complicated reasons. But instead, we were able to stand up and say, we are trained to, to know how to deal with this. We are going to be front and center. We're going to be honest with you. We're going to do what we have to do. We're going to make the kids feel safe. We're going to have people come talk to the kids. We're going to have people come talk to the parents. And it should never be that we need it. But one of the biggest reasons to have this foundation and this framework is so that, God forbid, if there is a crisis, you are not alone. And you are not left saying, how do I save us? And, and I cannot express enough how important it is to do things just for that. You should never need it and it should never happen. But having it there when it happens, I always say that about Atsala. My husband's a big Atsala guy. We should never need it. But knowing it's there is critical. And I, I cannot say enough how important it is as a school that is responsible for so many children, how important it is to have this structure should God forbid there be a crisis. Thank you Sorry. for interrupting me and saying that because that was incredibly valuable. Also, thank you for the guidance to this incredibly experienced podcast host. But I really should have said, do you have any final comments that you want to share before we sign off? So I'm going to now turn to Rabbi Horowitz and ask if you have anything final that you want to say before. I, I, think, I think this was beautiful. Um, I learned from listening. and. Um, just, just to anyone out there, if you're leading the school, if you have your own family, just realize that you have support, you have help. There are templates, you know, 25 years ago when Debbie and I were talking about this, that, you know, people <laughs> looked at us like we're talking about an invasion, you know, Martians coming into the country, you know, but it's, thank God, it's so different now. And, and you, you have resources, folks, whether it's a school or it's a family, 
you have resources for prevention. And God forbid, if there's something going on, you have resources for that too. And I hope I, I so concur with you that having those policies allows you to deal, God forbid, if some, when stuff happens and stuff happens. Appreciate it. Any, any final comments? Or I, I think, uh, if I may just say, uh, again, in, in appreciation for each of you for, for giving the time, for sharing of your experience, your wisdom, your uh, practicality, um, it's, it's, I think it will be incredibly helpful to all who listen, and I, I hope many will, and I am confident many will. I also think that this is something we should just pause and think about, especially this is uh, Kislev 2023. Kali Israel is going through a very, very difficult time. And I think that what we've been talking about here is an example of something that we don't pay enough attention to. What does that mean? We, we talk about Shuvah. Everybody talks about Shuvah. We have Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's the season of Shuvah. When you think about Shuvah, what do you think about? You think about burying your head in the machzer. You think about your, your little notebook and your cheshben anefesh about this thing that you do wrong and that how you're going to improve it. You know, it's a fascinating thing that, you know, the Gemara distinguishes between the tshuva of an individual and the tshuva of a community. And really the whole Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur season is an anniversary not of individual failure. It was a failure of Kal Yisrael. The Jewish people came from Har Sinai and created and worshipped in Egel Hazav. And the timeline of the thing is about the community doing tshuva. And sometimes there's something wrong, something the community doesn't know, something the community doesn't understand, something the community is doing wrong, either omission or commission. And that was certainly the case. That was certainly the case in the area that we're discussing tonight. And listening to this is an incredible example of communal improvement, which, which was deliberate. You know, all the steps, recognizing the failure, sometimes very painfully recognizing the failure, sometimes forced to recognize the failure, acknowledging the failure, figuring out how we could do better. And like as Rabbeinu Yonah says when he speaks about tshuva, it's also like not an uninterrupted trajectory. It, it's not, it, you know, one doesn't do tshuva to perfection. One does tshuva to do much better. And then they might slip, they might make a mistake, and then they figure out how to do even better and keep the trajectory going. And I, I don't think there's any better example than what has been described in this segment. And, uh, and uh, Debbie's comment about a community that's thirsty for even more more knowledge and more ability to do this right is an, is very 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 inspiring. I want to thank each and every one of you for what you do all the time. I apologize in, the, in advance for the hundreds of phone calls that you're going to start getting and emails from people who want to pick your brains further. But they're lucky to have you. We are lucky to have you. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. Thank you very much. I'm glad to continue now with uh, the second part of this discussion of this discussion about institutional safety in. Uh, in uh, trying to, to be part of this very important effort of National uh, Child Safety and Protection Month, uh, to use the opportunity as a Jewish community, as the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, to, to speak about how we make our environment for our, for our students, for our kids, uh, safer, one which really ensures child safety. Um, we spent some time a little bit earlier talking about the critical environment of the school and looked at some 
outstanding models and examples of how we create safety within a school environment. Uh, the school, of course, is not the only organizational environment in Jewish life. And uh, for this part of the, of the program, I'm privileged to be joined uh, by three people who are, each of them, outstanding leaders and implementers of child safety in, in the community in different forum and for us, and specifically, specifically in the world of, uh, in, what we're going to be focusing on is the world of more informal informal Jewish organizations, informal educational frameworks and programs such as camps, youth groups, and the like. Uh, our, our, our guest who will be speaking about this, Lauren Shavitz, who is the, uh, the director of Hannah, which is, that does that in Baltimore for all kinds of, every form of, uh, of, uh, of abuse that happens uh, within, within families and relationships, and, uh, and Dr. Dietze Berger, who is a psychologist who also serves as the camp psychologist for Camp Sternberg, and in that capacity is charged with educating staff and, 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 and making, creating that safe environment for that child safety environment um, for, for the camp. And, uh, and finally, Rabbi Kivi Fried, who in his professional life uh, is, the, is the director of a Jewish grad, graduate or, or grad organization, a, a, a wonderful organization on campus for graduate students all over the country. And um, Rabbi Fried previously served as associate international director of NCSY, and in that capacity uh, was, uh, was involved in, in, in implementing and enhancing uh, safety standards across many of the informal programs, all of the informal programs of the Orthodox Union, including NCSY and Yachad and JLIC and OU Israel's youth programs. Uh, so, so each of you brings a special experience and expertise uh, to be able to share with our community, to be able to share with listeners, to speak a little bit about what it looks like, what it looks like and what it takes to create that safe environment for for kids, for people within uh, within our within our community. So perhaps Lauren, if I could ask you, uh, from your perch, from your framework, uh, not so much running a youth program, not running a camp, but there to monitor and to assist in uh, in, uh, in in creating safety and responding to incidences of failures of safety. Could you start us off talking about what it looks like? what it would look like to, uh, to, to create that kind of safety within our organizations. Um, well, first, thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here um, with all of you to talk about this really important topic. Um, and I would say that um, I believe we're making a really big dent in this issue. And we're really, as a community, making a difference. And I think the reason is because we're talking about it, is because we're doing things just like we're doing together tonight is that we are creating a culture and a community that recognizes that we have to communicate about these things. And the only way to do that is to increase awareness that these issues can occur and do occur and how we look out for them and how we communicate about them. And I think the byproduct of having this awareness and this increased level of education throughout the community is that it also helps to reduce shame so that when something happens, people feel like they can come forward and they can talk about it and they can identify things um, earlier. And um, the earlier we are able to recognize something, the greater we're able to mitigate harm. 
And so, um, you know, in Baltimore, we have been implementing safety kit in almost all of our schools, and we are seeing the impact of that. We are getting calls from um, community members that see concerns much earlier than they would have years ago because of the information that they're learning and because it's been made okay to talk about it and to call an organization such as HANA to say, I noticed this behavior in this child. Is this something that I need to be concerned about? And how do I handle it? And how do I make sure that this child is safe? And I think that that is a tremendous, tremendous success. Thank you. I, we, we, I agree when we observe it. Uh, in fact, on the, on the first uh, part of this, uh, uh, Debbie Fox, who, who, who created Safety Kit, she cited a statistic from, from, excuse me that I don't remember the name of the doctor, that when, not so long ago, 20 years ago approximately, the statistics, the statistics were one in four for girls and one in seven for young men had experienced some kind of, some kind of, uh, of uh, incidents of abuse. And he says now the statistic, the way they see it is one in 10. And while one in 10 is still, like, it's way, way too many, but, but, it, but it's still, it, maybe my numbers are wrong, I'm sorry, but it's something like that. It is just seeing that difference. What, what changed? What changed was that education and that the people are familiar with it. So the early identification and noticing does it. So yes, this, the, these conversations are, are profoundly, profoundly important. Dr. Berger. In um, Ditsa, in in uh, in bringing forth uh, in in bringing that environment as you prepare, you you have a huge staff, so many kids. So what does it look like in advance of the summer in Camp Sternberg to to make sure that that summer is going to be a safe summer? So first of all, again, I'm going to um, echo what Lauren just said. Thank you for having me as well. Um, and I guess I'm going to give other thank yous here because one of the brothers in working in a place like Camp Sternberg is that I'm not creating the wheel. Rabbi Greenwald, all of a was there. He was the founder director or founding director of the camp. And he, this was something that was very near and dear to his heart. And he hired mental health professionals way before most other camps were doing it. I know Baruch Hashem now, there are many, many camps within the Orthodox community. Um, we'll do this, certainly NCSY is ahead of the curve on this. The reality is that Rabbi Greenwald really started this, and I walked into a system that was looking to really enhance um, this aspect. And, you know, when we speak to our staff to begin with, and we talk about the role of each staff member, the first role that everyone has is ensuring the safety and well-being of each of our campers. And the safety includes psychological safety in addition to physical safety. Um, and the camp employs a multi-pronged approach before the summer starts. Um, that approach includes letters to parents, asking parents to really speak to their children beforehand about appropriate personal safety. It includes staff training. We do staff training, obviously, when we get to camp, but we have a staff training that goes on before camp um, where we really discuss um, safety and abuse prevention. And abuse prevention includes sexual abuse, abuse prevention includes emotional abuse, abuse prevention includes physical abuse. I mean, the reality is anything that happens on the outside, unfortunately, happens on the inside. And a big piece of the education is like letting people know that we do know what could happen. We're on top of it. And we do monitor throughout the summer. We have 
educational programs throughout the summer for our staff. And the kids know that we're accessible. So that if we have a problem, we hope that, it, as, as Lauren said, as early in the problem as possible, we can nip it in the bud because people are aware of these things. Uh, Rabbi Free Kiwi. So what, what were the big pieces? What were the rocks of creating policies that could really work and comprehensively address the issue? Sure. So uh, I, first of all, thank you for having me as well. Also, it's great to be here with everybody. And uh, I agree that the more we talk about it, uh, the better it will get and, and the more uh, more we realize that we need to do. And I think that that is really a, a key to creating uh, really good standards and policies um, and looking at it like that is that there's always more to do. Can't rest on our laurels and think about that there's um, a complacency just because there's a good level of, of a standard that's been created because at one point there was a gold standard. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's the gold standard forever. You need to keep your eyes open, constant review, uh, staying with the times and understanding um, how trends change in the world of education, in the world of child safety, um, understanding uh, technology and social media and every aspect of those things and figuring out how to incorporate that into a good set of standards. And it doesn't just happen out of one mind. I think that um, having a group of people really work on it, when I worked on it for the OU, the different departments within the OU, um, it wasn't just the professional staff that thought about how this could be a great set of standards. Uh, it was full-out interviews, staff, volunteers, participants, participants' parents, um, lay leaders, anybody from that had anything, volunteers that would show up at programs, um, anything and everybody and every everything and everyone were interviewed and really uh, looked at from a holistic approach of how to uh, approach the standards um, from from every which way and every angle. Um, I think something that Lauren said before was really keeping our eyes open. Um, and I think that 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 is really the key to, to developing them and being able to see things, smell things, realize things, take things, you know, under, under, uh, under account to, to, to develop them. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's interviews, it's surveys, it's keeping up with the times, it's thinking sometimes even in, a, in somewhat of a, of a, uh, uh, hypochondriac sense, if that's the right word that like, what could go wrong? What, what possibly, if I was if the furthest possible away from something, but like, what could, what's the little tiny thing that could go wrong? And you plan for that because it could go wrong and it could happen. And the only way you're going to be able to approach it is if you really think like that and dig deep into, into every single aspect of it and understand every aspect of it from all the people that I mentioned previously so that you could find what needs to be improved on, what needs to, to, to get better and, and how to make that work from every, from every. So from a standard development end of things, I think that's the, uh, that's, that's a great approach. And, and the in-person, actually seeing it, going to an NCSY Shabbaton and seeing what that's like, going to a, uh, a Yachad, you know, uh, um, uh, program and, and participating in it and getting a feel of, of what that looks like and, and, and what things are going on or not going on over there, um, you know, is, is really uh, to be a, a bucky, I guess, in, in all sense, but to do it from a holistic approach of, you know, five different angles, looking at it and approaching it. All those people, we fuck isn't it as well also. Okay. And, and you, do, you did this with professional consultation of people who, who did this in other realms as well. Correct. We, I've, I worked with, a, an, when I was with the OU, I worked with an outside consultant who 
uh, who was uh, an expert in these areas and um, was a was a joint effort. Um, while while I might be a social worker, I'm not I, I, I I'm not necessarily trained in all these aspects. So the OU decided to bring in an outside person who was trained in all these aspects to help develop and build out um, these uh, policies and standards. Great, thank you. Thank you. So, Lauren, when, when we think about it, when we think about safety, and we talked about all this a little bit when we spoke about, you know, the, the schools as well, um, there are obviously multiple pieces to safety, but creating a safe environment, having the staff educated, parents educated. Um, uh, in, in the case, in many of these programs, it's even sort of pseudo professionals, camp counselors or group, youth group leaders, um, you know, having them, having them all, all educated. Part of it is also is is being able to prevent things happening in the environment of the school, or in this case of the camp or of the youth program. And part of it is also noticing and understanding the kids who are coming in, um, where really a lot of a lot of the abuse which occurs, people put a very high high percentage of it stuff which happens in the home and and things like that. When when you think of the role that these kinds of programs have in the lives of the kids and the students. What would you emphasize in terms of of seeing the kids and seeing what's happening with them to be able to to to, to address what's going on in the rest of their lives? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, um, like you said, most abuse happens in the home. The majority of abuse happens in the home, and one thing that we know is that. It's very rare that a child discloses on their own independently that they are being sexually abused. These disclosures usually come out accidentally. They come out because they're talking to a friend about something and an adult overhears, or they start acting out with some sexualized behavior, or there's some other behavior that's identified. And so creating the education that we're talking about, that people know what to look out for that people to know to look for those subtle nuances or, or changes in behavior or something that their gut's just saying doesn't seem right, um, and to believe it. You know, sometimes I think what happens, and I've heard over the years with schools, is they hear things that seem off and they just don't feel right or they see a behavior that really is inappropriate, but it's easier to find an excuse for it. Oh, the child just, maybe they have some attention issues or maybe something else is going on, but we really need to believe what we're seeing and we really need to explore more. And oftentimes that means bringing in professionals who do this day in, day out and are able to, um, to really assess the situation. Unfortunately, I would also say along with that, you know, one, some of the things that I say when I speak to groups and I speak to parents and they ask, what do we look out for in our behavior in behaviors in children is, Unfortunately, sometimes what we see is that the perfect child, the child who does everything right, who never misbehaves, who's going to get it right all the time, actually might be the child who's being sexually abused because they don't want anyone to know. They've been groomed to say, don't speak up. This is what will happen if you speak up. You can't tell anyone. And so they are going to act perfect. And that's a really scary thing to hear. But it's something that we really educate people about that if this child is good in every other area, don't ignore the warning sign you might see just because this is from a kid from a good family and behaves great in every other respect. We still need to pay attention to it. Great. Um, uh, Dr. Berger, uh, did some creating, you described how Rabbi Greenwald, when he built the camp, uh, 
like this was part of the values and the culture of the place. We want to make sure that you're not just having a good time, but that there's this is a really safe, really really safe environment. How, how do you, how does it how do you build that culture, and does it does it get in the way? Does it get in the way of it being um, the kind of warm and welcoming environment? Please talk a little bit about how how, how that looks. I'm going to answer backwards now. So the answer is no, it does not get in the way of it being a warm and welcoming environment. I, I think when kids sense that there's a, a responsibility and a sense of boundaries in terms of what the expectations are, and the, like even, even something as basic as we don't keep secrets in camp, that, that doesn't mean we don't make surprise things. It means that if you share something with me and you tell me that I can't tell anybody else, my job is to tell somebody else. And the staff knows that, and the campers are told that, and the parents are told that the campers are going to be told that. Um, I, I think that that actually creates a sense of safety and security because they know that this is what we're all about. But I'm a very firm believer in the opportunity and power that camp has to be transformative. And that opportunity and power to be transformative in a positive way, Chas could also be transformative in a very negative way. Um, you know, we have kids who are away from home. They are meeting with all kinds of other kids. There are discussions that you can't possibly, you know, control all of. And the reality is that we want the kids to leave with a very positive, healthy experience. And our staff has to be on top of knowing what's okay and what's not okay. And what Lauren was saying in terms of the signs and not making assumptions that because this child has this last name or is behaving so nicely in so many other ways, we can overlook a sign. I think that's an extremely important message. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question. <laughs> I mean, camp really allows kids to see different aspects of themselves. They see themselves as being valuable members of the community. Kids who can't do well in, in school can come out of camp shining and glowing and feeling really like they're respected and recognized. And that's a tremendous thing. And I think the safety kids feel in an environment like that is tremendous as long as class for show there isn't an abuse of, of power. I and mean, that's why we really emphasize this in our training and throughout the summer we emphasize this in our supervision. Um, Kivu, when, when, when you have such a, a dynamic environment, you know, like schools are relatively conservative, meaning you have people uh, their their career is it's a career path. Teachers are signed up. This is what they do for a living. They're they're fully developed, mature adults. Um, the leaders are are people who are organizational people. Right? They're there in in that frame. When when you're dealing with camps and youth movements, where you have a huge number of people who are part timers, who are volunteers, who are in their late teens or in their twenties, and they have responsibility. When even the leaders of it, you know, you, you you can't be like some some guy in a necktie like me and you know and and and, and running it. A, a, a leader of a youth movement or of a camp program is going to be like far more. How do you educate for safety with that kind of? Tell tell us what it looks like. What do, what do you actually do? What what do you do to make sure that that, that counselors on or or or, or advisors or whatever it is? How, how do you do it? It's a challenge. I can't I can't I can't deny that. You know, it's definitely something that um, that is focused on, and something that you know took some time to develop in order to properly wrap our heads and perspective around it. But I think it really is a focus from day one. I think that that's that's key. 
and, and appreciating that and seeing that that it's not you know it, there's no there's nothing more important in, in an organization be it a camp be it a uh, a nonprofit organization a youth organization anything it might be is that it's great if you know how to be enthusiastic and fun and loosen your necktie around the students except that none of that matters if you um, don't understand safety can't appreciate having your eyes wide open of realizing when there might be challenges or issues and and understanding the protocols um, we we work through um, educating from the beginning training from early on every staff member um, both in written documentation as well as uh, real verbal oral training you know hands-on approach to uh, to experiencing things there's never a volunteer in in the organizations within the OU that um, could be an official volunteer without uh, being trained first it's just it, they, they, they can't they can't do that um, and and I'll, I'll say you know the um, from day one it's kind of educated and repeated and focused on that that there is there's nothing more important than the safety of the participants the safety of the uh, volunteer, the safety of the staff person, and the safety of the organization, but with the emphasis really being on the safety of the of the of the of the participants. That is number one, and that is I can't tell you how many conferences I got up and I and I said that over and over again. Those though that line exactly, but number one is the is the safety of the participant. And to go back to something Dr. Berger said, that um, it actually provides a healthy environment is. Once you're able to train and allow people to see through, you know, maybe some examples, made up examples, things that, you know, that, that could potentially be, and I, some fun trainings with people on it, but they're able to see actually how it protects the, the participant, the volunteer, the staff person, and the organization as a whole, that something clicks, even for somebody who likes to chill or hang out or have a good time or do something. It's like, oh, right. This is this is my, me and my life, and my reputation. This is going to protect me. This is the student. This is the participant. This is the this is the person. This is it's going to be a safe a safe place for them. And then on the other end, I also think is that you know everybody. It's important for everybody to have somebody to report to, and for somebody to be watching them. Um, and I mean that from a staff end of things or a volunteer end of things. Is that they might be trained, the staff and volunteer, but then the senior staff has to be trained on either on even a higher level, so that they could realize when maybe somebody on the junior staff they need to look more into or see observe something that's going on there. And the same thing from a team level. So, you know, yes, you know, generally the the uh, the young person entering entering into JLIC or Yachad or NCSY or or, or 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 any other program might be somebody that's there for the fun and loosening up, and it might not be a long term career from them. There are people in these organizations that do have long-term careers and, and it's on them to be properly trained as well also to be able to look out for what they need to on all the other levels. Hey, thank you. Thank you. You used the word report and I'm going to use it in a different context uh, to turn to Lauren and ask, okay, so we, we've talked here about the aspects of safety, which are protection, professional standards, uh, you know, creating an environment where people know what they should do, what they shouldn't do, to notice when there's when there's a, a problem, to be able to guide. What happens when something does go wrong? Something goes wrong inside uh, the the organization, or there's a suspicion that something is deeply wrong with one of a, a problem 
that one of the participants is experiencing from outside the program or that has occurred inside the program. So you, 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 you and your organization, and I know I, I, I worked with you and with, with, uh, with uh, Hana for many, many years, um, did a lot when things went wrong, not just work of prevention, but response. And, um, and uh, could you, as uh, organizations like this create protocols and systems, like what, what, should, what does it look like to do it you know, the right way? People should know the clear path around around handling when things go wrong. So, you know, I think um, obviously every situation is different, but I really think that when someone notices that something's wrong, the first step is always to contact a professional in this field, because one of the most difficult things to understand is that work, work what works and is very successful in one circumstance could actually create more danger in another. And so, you know, one of the things that um, that I really appreciated that Kiwi said earlier was thinking about what could go wrong. And in an organization like HANA, that's how we take approach everything. That's that's the essence of what safety planning is all about, is thinking about the consequences, every possible consequence of what could go wrong if we took this action versus that action. Now, we all know that if um, an organization is working with um children that they are mandated reporters. And that is certainly a part, the starting place for so many of these policies that they're mandated reporters. But sometimes mandated reporting only goes so far. And we all have had that experience where you make a report and then what happens out of it. And sometimes something happens, sometimes something doesn't. But when you're working with a professional organization, not only can they help advocate with the authorities to try to get it right, and advocate on the, the behalf of the child or the organization that's noticing things to make sure that this is taken seriously and that safety issues are really thought about well, the organization can also think outside the box. Okay, well, the authorities are going to take it this way. How are we going to really help this family? How are we really going to help this child? What are the unique circumstances here? And again, every situation is so incredibly different. I'm working with a school called us just this week because they observed some behaviors in some children. And it didn't really rise to the level of making a report, but it rose to the level of being concerned. And so really talking through how do we want to manage this? Um, what should the parents' role be in this? How are the parents going to receive this? Um, can we get the children some counseling? What is the right avenue and what's really going to work for this family? And so I think if you are fortunate enough to have an organization that is doing this kind of work near you, that's the starting place. Because again, every situation is so, so different. And um, children are walking around in fear. And when they're carrying the burden of something that might be really going wrong for them, they've gone through a grooming process of don't talk about this. And if you talk about this, no one will believe you. No one will love you. Your parents are going to abandon you. The community is going to ostracize you. There's a million things that they've been threatened with. And so we need to make sure that we don't scare a child off from speaking up and that we create the space where they know if you speak about this, we should, are prepared should, to respond. Should, we are should, the, the, should the organization have like a specific pathway that they, that they put in front of the child, okay, that they put in front of the parent, that they put in front of the staff, if you see something, this is where you where you need to turn. What what is best practice? 
Yeah. I mean, I will tell you that the the standards that I've read from the OU are probably, it's probably one of the best models I've seen of what to do. And the reason why I say that is because it has laid out what is going to happen when any sort of violation of the protocols is observed. And it lays out what, what it's going to look like, but not only what's going to happen, but who's going to handle that. And far too often, I see policies created that don't really say who's going to handle something. And then a crisis emerges and everybody's running around saying, who, who do we call? Who deals with this? And in a crisis, it's never the time to figure that out. And so I really, really applaud these policies created by the OU that really spell out, these are the steps we're going to take. And they're very clear, the steps and who's going to be, who you're going to be in touch with in every possible scenario. And I think that that is um, tremendous. And if I may point out one other thing that I see in those policies that I think are just fabulous is, um, is the whole issue about um, boundaries. And uh, I really, really appreciated that the, that the policies not only talks about mandatory reporting, which we know about, and I'm grateful that, that those are in there. But it's also about perhaps when something hasn't risen to the level of abuse or we're observing abuse or we're concerned about abuse, but we notice that there are these boundaries that are being crossed. And I loved how it talks about emotional boundaries being crossed um, and power dynamics, and we need to talk about that. And I think that is also so critical because abuse starts with grooming. And so if we can catch this early, and we can say, wait a minute, I see a power dynamic here. This is who I need to talk to about this. I know who to call. I think that that is brilliant. And I think that is so powerful and so effective. And it thrills me to see that in these policies. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Berger, uh, uh, you've been practicing in this area 12 months a year uh, as a psychologist in the community uh, and as well in your capacity in, in, in the camp. Um, could you speak a little bit about the particular challenges perhaps that the Orthodox community might face in dealing some of these issues as, as with the specific culture and values and halachos of the Orthodox community? And, um, and how, again, like just like best practice, like how, how, how those challenges have been or, or can be comfortably and successfully overcome? Comfortably is going to be a bigger challenge than successfully. Because I, I think that one of the biggest fears that most people have is, what if I have to file a report? What if I have to say something? I mean, when I, when I deal with my teenage staff or I deal with the teenage campers and they're worried about a friend, but they don't want to tell on a friend because there's a fear of, well, will telling on them make things actually worse? And what I think Lauren was actually referring to that before, or is telling on them what's not telling on them? Is that the mechanism to get them to help that they actually that they actually need. Um, I, I think that that is a very big fear. I think that people are scared of using the system. Um, I think that knowing that the Orthodox Rabbinate is behind using the system, I think that knowing that we have responsibilities as mandated reporters is very helpful, but I think comfortably we're still very far away from that. What I can tell you in terms of comfort, I guess in terms of, we, we had a situation, um, goes back several years, um, and one of my colleagues actually dealt with the kid post-camp on the referral of another camper. Kid came home, she told her mother, this is what my bunkmate shared with me. The camp was notified. 
this person put in a report. And it was very interesting because a few months later, they got a call from Child Protective Services, basically saying that at the request to the family, they're calling to thank them because they never thought they could get this kid out of the situation. And that was what the mandated reporting actually accomplished. And it's a very scary thing to make a report because, again, you're scared of fallout. You're scared of what could go worse than it actually is. But the reality is you could also be saving, you could be saving a life. And it's, it's not like you, you make the report and then every, you know, the sun shines, the birds chirp, and everything is fine. These are, these are arduous, very long processes. And people suffer trauma for a very, very long, I, I don't even want to say for a very long time, because they suffer from trauma. But the reality is that if we do our job and we educate our staff and we educate ourselves, we really could be saving lives. And, and that's, not, that's not a small potato. It's, it's a really tremendous responsibility and opportunity. Uh, Kivi, thank you very much. Kivi, um, change, introducing change and new practices and new rules into, uh, into an organization. Um, I'm sure it's just met with welcome. People say, great, are there more? Could you give us more rules? Could you give us more, more limitations? So like, how do, how do people do this? I mean, you, 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 you came into an organization which already had implemented significant change and had made it a little bit part, of, you know, already part of the culture safety. But then your job, part of your job was we're not satisfied. We have to make it better. We have to make it more, uh, so to speak, cutting edge. And as you said, like evolve with the times and understand the knowledge advances. So what's it like? Like how much I, I don't I don't want I, how do you deal with making it embraced instead of it facing just resistance? Sure. Um, before I get to that, I just want to comment on something Lauren and Tisa and Dr. Berg both said in terms of the, um, the comfort of reporting and, you know, feeling empowered to do so. It, it, it is probably the hardest piece of, or one of the hardest piece of all this. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Berger mentioned it, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a simple process. Um, but it's a, uh, it's an important process and, um, you know, it's, it's something that has to get done and people have to learn how to be comfortable doing it and guided through, guided through it properly, uh, to make, to make that happen. Um, so just want to acknowledge that piece in terms of change and, you know, the constant evolving and, 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 you know, more standards and being sharper and more thoughtful and more holistic. And when I came in, NCSY did not have a, uh, or any part of the OU did not have, let's say a social media right um boundary guidelines because there was no such thing as social media it was it wasn't there and you know uh we had to develop those policies and then we had to roll them out and uh definitely not simple to do but the um the uh the approach generally was uh that uh which is just constant just constant communication of it and again putting this not as like a 15 minute you know side thing at a training program but like this is gonna get the. This is gonna get three hours at a training program. I was at several of them with Dr. Berger. Like it wasn't wasn't an afterthought. Like this is front and center. More important than how to run a chabura or how to you know uh, um, to, you know do something uh, you know how to have a fun trip with 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 you know with participants. It, it, like this is it. And when they realize that this is front and center and this is what that they have to be doing, um, and that just because you were trained last year it doesn't mean that you're exempt from being trained this year, and that it's from the 
newest person in the organization to the most you know seasoned person in the organization that has to participate in these things, then then it rolling it out becomes rolling it out. At the same time, you have to like any education, you can't, you know, Hazara reviewing is very important, but if you spend a bulk of your time just reviewing, 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 then the new stuff is gonna get lost as well also. So you have to find that healthy balance between the Hazara, between the review of the ones that are existing and the new and, and te- make sure to teach that, implement that, as well as the um the the, the new things. Um, and make them, you know, into like a chiddush, make them into something fresh in people's eyes so that it's not just, oh, same old, same old, but that there's an element of, of doing that. A lot of, I know in trainings throughout the OU, there are a lot of hypothetical case studies that are done that will introduce the newest set of programs, a newest set of standards that are that are being rolled out so that people, to the back of the hypochondriac, what could go wrong, are now starting to think about those things as well also in terms of those things going wrong. And it's like, wow. Thank you for putting those standards into place. Um, you know, they, 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 they really mean a lot. They're very important. Um, I never thought about that before. And, and that's really like what you want to get out of people when they come into um, a training program, when they come into the organization, or when we're rolling out a new set of, uh, a new set of uh, standards that'll just help further, you know, protect the uh, participants, the volunteers, the staff, and the organization. I, I would love if you would add, and I'm going to ask really as we as we approach the end. I want each of you to, instead of me like prompting you with a question, I'm sure you have tons that you'd want to say and specific ideas that you think you'd want to share that would help be most helpful to those listening who want to really raise the game in terms of this. So, Lauren, I'm very happy to hear what you have. Thank you. I just wanted to add to what Kiwi said about change, and I think oftentimes what happens is when something horrible happens. And a community becomes aware that something really alarming has happened. Everybody wants to talk about it. And everybody wants to make sure that their communities, policies, procedures, knowledge, awareness, education is, is up to speed. And, you know, when something happens in our community of that nature, our phones ring off the hook because everybody wants to say, is my school, is my school of good enough policies? What do we need to be doing? And I think, you know, obviously that's very reactive. It's very normal, of course, and it's very reactive. And I think if there's a way for us to continue without being alarmists, without us having to focus on the negative all the time, but if we can shift that mindset instead of being reactive and saying, now we are at a place where we all know that this can happen because we've seen it. We've had it, unfortunately, horribly, we've had enough experience to know that this can happen in our Jewish communities. And so therefore, instead of being reactive, it's time for us to be proactive. And I think people are more and more open to that, um, unfortunately, because of the, the terrible things that have happened, that more schools, more camps. I mean, we are getting calls from camps all the time saying we really need to button up our policies. Can you take a look? Can you help us think through them? Because I pe- think people are really recognizing that we really can't operate from a place any longer being ro- um, reactive. We really, the expectation from parents and community members and our, 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 you know, our culture is now that we're going to be proactive and we are going to protect our children and we are going to be very um, aware of what our policies are rather than creating them after the fact. That is a critical, critical shift, a critical shift. And uh, I'm glad you highlighted it. Dr. Berger. I, I want to, yeah, I want to um, basically apply what Lauren was saying in terms of being proactive to what um, TV was calling being hypochondria, hypochondriasis. It's not hypochondriasis. Like what I tell the counselors when you go into a bunk, I want you to look around 
I want you to look up and down and say to yourself, what could a kid do here? Right? We used to have rafters. We don't have them anymore. But they all knew how to climb onto the rafters. And they know how, how to swing from the rafters. And if the counselor doesn't say on day one, that's not something that you can do, they're going to do it. So I, I, I like the proactive thing. I also really want to see the OU's protocols because I think I'm the only one on the screen who hasn't seen them. And I, I, think, I, I think I'm saying that, and that's just because I really want to see them. But I think we'll have to share with each other. Um, what, one of the things that the camp started to do recently, it's not so recent, it probably goes back about 10 years, is that they take the senior staff to the American Camping Association conference. There's a tri-state convention. It's not, a, it's not a Jewish thing. There are a very substantial number of Jewish participants. Um, there are even a significant number of from Orthodox participants. I think people from Yahad were there. I didn't see people from other parts of, of NCSY. But Camp Romanu was there, and Haviva is there, and Sternberg is there, and Perkals, I think, brought about 30 people. Um, but we will get trained on an ongoing basis. That's in addition to any continuing education that we do for ourselves, because there's knowledge out there. And if there's knowledge out there, we want to be aware of it so that we can, we can do our best. And Baruch Hashem, like, you know, I constantly want to be educated in terms of what's going on. So anything you can share, I'll be very happy to We, we, we can readily share and, it with you because we actually share it with the world. Uh, if you go onto the websites of, of the various departments like NCSY, their policies, their safety policy is right there for anybody to have it. It's not a secret. It's not something which... Even people only get upon enrollment. It's 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 public. It's public because of what Lauren said at the beginning that when we start talking about these things and we're very clear and and open about them, uh, it creates an environment where people are just more comfortable, you know, dealing with issues as they arise. Um, I think they should be public also because, as uh, as Desmond said, there's 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 so much to learn from it and there's so much to be to be to be you know, to almost, I, I, excuse me for saying it this way, but almost like to, to be proud of, uh, as to say, look, look, look where we've come uh, as a community in, in, in dealing with these issues and in, in, and therefore being able to create an atmosphere of prevention. We're never going to be perfect as a community. We're never going to be perfect. As long as there are human beings walking around and interacting with other human beings, uh, mistakes will be made. To not just mistakes, but wrong things and malicious things will be done, and people will try to to take advantage of others. That's that's the the nature of the world. But our job, I I I I would imagine we all agree. Our our job is to be able to when those mistakes first of all create an environment where those mistakes are less likely to happen, where there are the windows that look in and so on and so forth that make the mistakes less likely to happen. And then that they're noticed, the problems are noticed, and that the problems are promptly and effectively addressed. And and to me, and I'm not a mental health professional, uh, but have worked in the community for, for, for a long time, and to see where we've come as far as that goes in terms of being able to notice it and bring it forward and address it it just it's the difference between allowing a problem to fester, turn into a disaster, and cutting it off as quickly as possible when you have the greatest chance for resilience and recovery and prevention of further of further harm. So that's really that's our goal. That's I think the goal of each of us. And I think that's as you said, it's the healthiest place to do it is when you're 
doing it from a proactive state of just saying we need to improve and we need to get better. Um, one thing that, that like, you know, we've been talking about at the, all at the same time interweave, but we were talking about like the abuse at home that to keep your eyes open for stuff like that. And to realize that and be educated around those things, but also the, the, um, you know, the God forbid on a program, you know, or something like that and being able to keep your eyes open, you know, for those things as well also. And they're, they're two very different skill sets and very, two very different, like being able to, uh, 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 awareness factors of, of realizing you know, what to approach. And, and that, you know, that, that's a tough, that's a really tough balance, you know, to be able to, especially if you're young people, Rabbi, like you were asking me before in terms of being able to do that, being able to be mature enough to realize, you know, issues, issues at home and issues, you know, within a program themselves. Um, and, and hence what I said before in terms of the different layers, but also as, as uh, Dr. Berger said before, that there's um, knowing who to turn to, and knowing that, you know, encouraging people to be able to turn to the right people all the time. One of my, one of my common refrains when I was there was always, you know, bump it up. Like, like you just got to, you just got to talk to more people. You have to let other people know, don't be bashful. Don't hide behind certain things. You got to keep on bumping it up. This New York City, right? Subway used to be, if you see something, say something. And like, that's it. Like, like the constant communication, us talking about it now, but even within any one of these environments, so essential and so key to be able to, to do that. And lastly, the, just not to think that creating boundaries and standards is like rosy and easy and simple to do. It's not. You're trying to achieve programmatic success and organizational success. But more importantly than any of that is keeping everybody safe at the same time. And you're going to go ahead and have to figure out how to weave those two things together so that safety always comes out on top and that the program will still be a great program. But the, the safety will always come out on top no matter what. So... Um, just a little glimpse in, so don't think that you could revamp standards in like three days. Um, one one of the problems with this podcast is I'm realizing how much I miss Kiwi um, since he uh, since he left uh, since he left the OU. Really, thank you, thank you for all that you put in and for the impression that remains and uh, that 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 uh, that keeps everything really strong. I, I just want to give a chance if, if uh, before I, I, I wrap it up, if anyone has uh, a closing thought that they wanted to share, uh, please. And I, I think that I guess one of the nice things about working in a camp or in any organization is that there is a team. And I, I think each of us knowing our role within the organization and who we report to and that we're not doing it alone, that, you know, you're, you're going to consult with somebody else that there's somebody else who's going to understand the discomfort in making the report, that there's somebody else who's going to understand the necessity in making the report. I, I think that this is a tremendously valuable aspect. I I'm sitting in my private practice office. Private practice, you don't have that. We do have lawyers that we consult with, and we do have people, you know, but you don't have that same kind of, we're all part of the same team. And I think being part of a team just really allows each of us to work together and ensure the safety and well-being of our campers, of our staff, um, and really help people be successful in life. I mean, that, that's, I, I like working with I, I know Lauren wants to say something, but what I want to say actually impact, it, yeah. it has to do with Lauren. With, uh, with, with, I can't agree more enthusiastically with what you just said. And um, it, it's, I think it's a piece of the framework which Kiwi created, but, I, you know, I was a congregational rabbi for a while, and these issues came up. Um, I, in fact, it, that's the reason why I have white hair. Um, they came up, 
and um, and uh, there was a, like a cardinal rule um, for for a hundred reasons, uh, starting of which this, the first one is that like a rabbi's not an expert in this, and uh, the other thing is a, a rabbi or an organizational leader might have all kinds of concerns that they're worried about. Other, in addition let's say, in addition to the particular safety of the individual who may be hurt or may have been hurt, they have to maybe also worry about, uh, about uh, whether they're worrying about the organization, whether they're worrying about the alleged perpetrator. There, there, there are so many different pieces, and you can't do this by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. And I learned early on uh, that um, before Lauren was at, was, at, uh, was at Hannah, Nancy Aiken, Dr. Nancy Aiken was there, I mean, we, whenever something came up, she was at the table because here you have an expert and outside of your organization and outside of your own personal biases, and they bring that expertise and they, they already have that bridge well constructed to the child protective services and to the, and to the, to, to, to the expertise. And, and Lauren stepped into the role and does exact and plays that role for so many principles and for rabbis and for individuals so that it's a team and you know we have to be humble this is like a really hard area really hard issue and none of us knows everything and there are no clean and neat ways where you can solve the whole thing and you know we all we all believe in the mandated reporting and we're going to do it and, and we will do it but as lauren said many times it's it's not the panacea it doesn't just like say oh wow we gave it over to did what we were supposed to, and now we're finished. We might be able to check the box, but we haven't necessarily solved the problem. There's so much value in the team, and I think TV, like when somebody makes a report, it goes to an outside consultant who becomes part of the team. We we have our own people to deal with it, but right, I think we have a. a, a that's right. That's right. That's right. The uh, in the the standards it goes to an outside it goes to an outside firm that that are the initial intake and they're the ones that really do the entire assessment and take care of it all and are the ones who um if profession if the if the ou professionals need to be involved then they will otherwise they're just going to handle it um and and it's really it's really like a gold standard of of you know no conflict of interest or anything like they're they're just on the outside doing it and um you know and, and bring it full circle so um and sometimes that means, like in the case of reporting, though, right? So, like, there's a somebody suspecting child abuse at home, you know, of uh, one participant. So, like, they they'll work with this outside firm, but ultimately, this you know, 24 year old, you know, um, uh, staff person is going to have to call the respective reporting agency and be able to do it. And that takes that takes a lot of takes a lot of strength and courage. But um, but having a team around you, as was pointed out, is incredibly encouraging for that. And, um, it's part of, you know, being a mandated reporter, doing it, making it happen. And ultimately the way I started off, these are all in place standards all the time are in place to keep everyone safe. And, uh, that's the, that's the ultimate price of, of us as, as communal professionals, as human beings is the, is the safety of, of, of the, uh, participants, safety of the people and the safety of each other. Um, yes. throughout. so Lauren, you know, I was going to say very similar to what you said um, and what Dr. Berger said about team. And I was going to say thank you to you, Rabbi Howard, because, you know, I think what is so critical, not only having um, people that are so educated in this space and organizations that really 
thrive in this space. We can't do any of this if we don't have a community that values this. And we don't have an organization like the OU and we don't have clergy behind that saying, this is our value. This is the culture we want to create. This is where we, this is where we came from and this is where we need to be. And without that value and that culture being created by an organization like the OU, we don't even, it doesn't even get to us and we don't even get to do this work. And so I wanted to say to you, thank you for creating that team. Thank you for making this such a big priority and valuing this is such an important issue because that is really what creates the tone and the the movement for all of us sitting here to be able to do the work you're that very, we do. You're very kind. I'm, I'm, I, I want to thank each of you. I want to thank each of you for, for, the, for the past hour. And I want to thank each of you for decades of, the wor- of work which you've done in order to bring us where we are. And well, I, I want to repeat something which I said to the, to the group uh, but which uh, where we spoke about schools. Um, so the listeners might be a little bored, but I want to say it to you because it's, it's really something which is inspiring. We, we, when you think about tshuva, about you know, self-improvement, return, like what, do you, what do we think about? And we have this tendency, we think about, we bury our head in our Yom Kippur prayer book, in our machzer. We, we sit down and we make a cheshbon nefesh. We, we evaluate ourselves and think about this thing that I want to improve and that thing that I want to improve. And it's true. That's a piece of tshuva. That's the individual story of tshuva self-improvement. But there are two realms of tshuva. One is what the individual does to get better. And what is really that what a community does to get better? And it's not a homily. Uh, when, when we, you know, the Talmud distinguishes between the two. It speaks about the tshuva of an individual and the tshuva of a rabbin, of a community. And Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you know, Yom Kippur is not the anniversary of when a few individuals said, you know, I'm going to start speaking more nicely to others, or I'm going to stop uh, shoplifting, or I'm going to start making sure that I pray on a daily basis. No, what happened was the Jewish nation came from Sinai, and they created a golden calf, and it was a national failure. It was a national failure. And on Yom Kippur, we completed the process where God said, okay, I forgive you for the national failure, and I'm going to give you now, I'm going to give you the Torah back. I'll give you that second set of tablets. It's really the story of the truth of a community. And, and, you know, sometimes we, when we look at ourselves, we say, okay, I'm going to fix this. Community, we're like stuck. And this, this conversation is an illustration of how a community grows and how a community does tshuva. How a community, and this is like the whole world, like nobody in, in, in the world understood the subject that we're talking about, and whether it took us longer or we were just as fast or we were slower than anybody else, the, the ability to understand what it means to create safety for a child in these personal ways, once upon a time, we didn't know and we didn't understand and we couldn't talk about it. And if we would talk about it, we wouldn't know what to say, and wouldn't know what to do. And communities can improve. And if we can improve in this, we can improve in other things. And it's, uh, it's deeply inspiring. It's really very, very special. And I think everybody here, each one of you, is really part of, of moving that along. So, again, thank you. Thank you for the hour. Thank you for the discussion. And thank you for being a goad for, uh, God willing, further growth and further improvement.
Thank you so much for joining us for these four episodes focusing on child safety. There were so many powerful moments and, and one that really stuck out to me, my, probably my biggest takeaway, is that the child can never be afraid to tell a parent anything. And while there are things that they may not want to say to a parent, and that's, and that's understandable, it is our job as the parent to make them feel as comfortable as possible to either tell us, and if not to tell us, to at least have a safe adult that they can talk to. I recently heard Rabbi Danielle Kalish, in a completely different context, say that if we look at children as souls, they're more likely to share because it takes away the shame. And I think it fits, fits perfectly as a closure for this month. As parents, the more that we can look at our children as souls, as the neshamos that they are, not just for the sake of them telling us things, but in general, we will approach our children in such a more healthy way and will establish a more meaningful and close relationship with them, which is the strongest defense we can have in this topic of child safety. Again, thank you for joining us. The feedback for this month has been incredible. So thank you for listening or for watching and thank you for sharing the feedback. It's very meaningful. And make sure to subscribe wherever you podcast, whether it's on YouTube, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is. Follow us on Instagram, Janoff underscore parenting. And next month, we're going to be discussing the emotional health of our children, which ties in well with this topic as we continue our parenting hierarchy, kicking off with the world famous Dr. David Palkowitz. Looking forward. Thank you again for joining us.